This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The healthcare debate on its face might seem absurd. I mean, if you ask 10 strangers, should people be able to see a doctor and be healthy, you'd expect somewhere near 10 yeses. And yet the country has argued for decades over its healthcare system. Well, today we're going to take a big step back to learn how our minds themselves can lead to this kind of political gridlock, to the divisiveness we see in the country on this and many other issues. Cognitive scientist Philip Fernback of CU Boulder joins me. And Phil, welcome to the program. Thanks so much. So in a new book called The Knowledge Illusion, you write point blank that people are more ignorant than they think they are. We all suffer from an illusion of understanding. And you go on to write that one reason for this gridlock is that both politicians and voters don't realize how little they understand. Now, to illustrate this, you point to the toilet (laughs) and the zipper. So why don't we start there? What can a toilet or a zipper tell us about our own ignorance? Sure. It's um, it's pretty funny to start with such sort of mundane examples, but I think at the, uh, as we go along, we're going to um, see how, 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 um, how, how deep these things run. So um, if you ask people to uh, how well they understand things like, say, a toilet or a zipper or a can opener or any other kind of common thing that they interact with in their daily lives, they'll tell you they kind of understand how they work. They have a pretty good sense of that. They're confident yeah, that they, they could explain this thing that is in their lives every day. Exactly. But then if you ask them, okay, explain to me exactly how it works in a detailed way, um, you get pretty interesting kind of uh, result. It so, starts to break down. Absolutely. So people reach inside and they realize that they actually don't know nearly as much as they thought they did initially. Okay. I asked one of the smartest people I know, <laughs> our senior producer, if she knew how a toilet worked. Rachel Estabrook, how does a toilet work? You put so much water in that it forces everything down. You don't sound very sure of yourself. (laughs) Yeah. I I mean, mechanical engineering or whatever is not, plumbing certainly is not my specialty. It's not your specialty. But I wonder if it surprises you that here's this thing you've used. Every day. Since you were potty trained, presumably. And its mechanism is a bit of a mystery to you. Yeah. So much of what happens in our modern life, right, is just you press a button or, you know, I know that when I push the lever on the toilet, things are going to disappear. And so essentially, uh, there was a researcher who developed the first ignorance test around this idea of trying to explain simple household objects. That's right. Um, there was a psychologist by the name of Frank Kyle out of Yale University and um, and his colleagues. And this is precisely what they did in their studies. They asked people, um, first, how well do you understand these kind of ca- common uh, objects? How well do you understand how they work? And then they asked people to explain. And then they tested them again to find out um, whether their uh, sense of understanding had been reduced. And they found these dramatic effects. They found um, indeed that people overestimate their their knowledge base, their sense of understanding. Absolutely. absolutely. It turns out that we know a very tiny amount about the way that the world works. It's really, um, when we reflect on it, it's really shocking. Um, there's this great study we talk about in the paper um, by a psychologist named Thomas Landauer who set out to estimate, estimate the size of an individual's knowledge base okay. in bytes, so the same scale that you would use to measure a computer memory. Okay. And um, he did this in a variety of diff- very, different, uh, very different ways, um, very clever approaches. For instance, one thing that he did was he um, had people study uh, pictures or words and then later tested to see 
uh, whether they could remember them or recognize them. And then he could estimate the rate at which we can acquire knowledge and then sort of extrapolate to a human lifespan. And uh, so he did this a variety of different ways. Every, every time he got to the same estimate of that knowledge base. And so what do you think that was? Uh, well, I read the book. Yes. So I am not going to guess. Okay. So it's, but it's, I, I would think uh, compared to a computer, we'd fare, I don't know, fairly well because we're, we're so interested in getting computers to be more like us. It's, it's a pretty crazy result. So it's one gigabyte which I think is just an amazing thing. So if you buy a thumb drive on Amazon for 20 bucks, it's 64 gigabytes. So the human mind just is not made to store a lot of detailed information. We just do not know very much as individuals. Okay, so you and your co-author in this endeavor, the book again is called The Knowledge Illusion. Uh, Your co-author is Stephen Sloman. You extrapolated this research based on on the toilet, for instance, and whether people could explain it. And and you tried to extrapolate to politics. Right. Uh, And this is a, a fraught time. It's a fraught day for politics and particularly the healthcare debate. And you you conclude that just as people overrate their own understanding of toilets, they also overrate their understanding of political policies. People tend to have limited understanding of complex issues. They also tend not to have a good sense of how much they actually know. And the outcome is passionate, polarized attitudes that are hard to change. That's right. And you you indeed relate this to the Affordable Care Act, saying public opinion is more extreme than people's understanding justifies. Say more about that. Yeah, absolutely. So we, we've run studies um, showing exactly this, this illusion of explanatory depth or illusion of understanding in the context of political policies. Um, and basically, we use a similar kind of approach. So um, how well do you understand, um, you know, the Affordable Care Act or uh, a sanctions policy on, on Iran or something like that? And people tend to express pretty strong uh, uh, beliefs about those things. And they they tend to think that they understand them pretty well. At the and beginning, then, right. At the beginning. They and, think, I know this issue. Yeah. They say, I, yeah, I, I know that pretty well. I have a pretty good sense of it. Um, and then we ask them to explain. And that's when things start to break down. And what's um, especially interesting is they don't just um, realize that they know less than they think they do, but they actually become a little more moderate in their positions, which makes a lot of sense. Because if you realize that you're not on firm ground, that you don't understand the issue as well as you thought you did, it makes sense to become a little bit more moderate in your orientation. Okay. I think this is really the, the nugget here, that a lack of understanding can go hand in hand with real passion Absolutely. About an issue. And yet you'd think the less you know about something, perhaps the more reluctant you'd be to, to be passionate or outspoken. But that's not what research shows. That's right. Often we find exactly the opposite, actually. People who know the least about an issue can sometimes be the most passionate about it. And, and the reason for that is because the way we take in the world is in this kind of simplistic way. Things seem simple to us, like the toilet. Oh, I get that. Um, and so we often don't appreciate how complex things are. When you have a little bit more expertise in a domain, what that often uh, entails is learning that the issue is more complex and becoming more moderate. So it's often the people who are the least knowledgeable who can have the strongest opinions. So when you look at the logjam in Washington these days and the polarization, are you just saying that everyone on Capitol Hill is ignorant? Uh, that is to say, you can only know something and be a moderate? 
No, so that I, I, I don't want to go that far. So, yeah. so like the point that we that we're trying to make in the book is about the structure of knowledge. Knowledge doesn't reside in individuals' heads. Like I said, each of us knows very little. What we're great at as human beings is sharing knowledge. So we're able to pursue incredibly complex goals because each of us knows a little bit, and our minds, the architecture of our minds, is really set up. To, to collaborate, to work together, to pursue complex issues. And in fact, the subtitle of your book is Why We Never Think Alone. Exactly, exactly. Uh, and that the idea of combined knowledge, uh, you argue, leads to better outcomes. What What is the risk, do you think, um, to, the, to the democracy, I mean, let's get highfalutin here, right. of people's overestimation of their own knowledge. So, so the, the issue is that individually, none of us knows enough to understand these really complex issues. And yet, as communities, we take positions on these issues. We have to. And as individuals, we have to take positions on the issues. The positions that you and I take on these issues are not based on knowledge that's actually residing in our own heads. They're based on this distributed knowledge that's um, distributed across our community. And our communities are awfully different. So you may that's, be getting a very right. different message about a policy from your community in Boulder, say, that's right. than someone might be in Grand Junction. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and yet we live in this illusion that we've arrived at our positions through a serious analysis. As individuals, we... Um, sort of channel our community when we express our opinions. That's kind of what we're doing. So it's not so easy to just say, oh, you know, you're wrong about this. Think something different. No, our, our position is really based on this sort of distributed knowledge and our identity in terms of how we affiliate in, in these communities of knowledge. That's why it's so hard to bridge the gap. In a way, the knowledge illusion that you write about is a bubble, the, the, the bubble politically that many people are in. That's right. Absolutely. Um, so... We, we, we feel like we individually have these things figured out when in fact it's our community that where the knowledge resides. And by virtue of that, um, we tend not to verify and check our own understanding. So we have these strong opinions about things that we don't understand very well. And we make decisions at the ballot box related to that. And our own elected officials are a reflection of that as well. I, I want to get back to this um, research that you did that seemed to be able to move people to a more moderate position. Right. Because if there's one thing we all know, it's that the polarization exists, the logjam exists. We've heard about that problem ad infinitum. And I think so many people are hungry for solutions that there could be a moderating force. Say more about how you got people to recognize their own lack of knowledge sure. and to moderate their views of something. I think that this is really the $64,000 question. It is really, really hard um, to move people on issues and for uh, to open people's minds. Often people uh, believe things that uh, might not be correct and it's, it can be really, really hard to change minds. And there, l- let me start by saying there's a variety of things that don't seem to work very well. Um, most of the things that have been tried don't work very well. So huh. to give you one example, in our experiments, one of our, uh, one of our groups, what we did is we asked people to generate reasons for their position instead of to sort of explain how it works. Okay. Um, and so, uh, when you, like I said before, if, if we ask people to explain how it works, they become a little more moderate because they realize they don't understand as well as, as they thought. But when you and ask that's people related to, to the issue, but when you ask them about their own views of the yes, issue. Yes, exactly. Um, then uh, if you ask people to, to, to uh, talk about reasons, then they don't have that sort of uh, aha moment. 
basically it's easy to skim reasons off the top without sort of going deeper and, and, and realizing you don't understand the issue well. Um, if, if I say, why, do you, why are you in favor of cap and trade? You can very easily say, well, because I, you know, like I care about the environment or something like that without actually going deeper and realizing um, the complexity of the issue. So what you've learned there is less about having people explore their own thinking or reasoning and getting them to focus on the ins and outs of the issue that's itself. That's right. That's right. Taking taking sort of an outside view, and and there's been some uh, some research um, on um, global warming actually that uses a similar kind of methodology. It turns out that if you um, ask uh, just ordinary people. Um, in, in uh, ordinary Americans about the global warming mechanism, it turns out that just about 0% can actually articulate the mechanism. That's right. Let's focus on climate change yeah. because you write about the research of Michael Ranney. He's a psychologist yep. mm-hmm. at the University of California, Berkeley. And he had participants read a 400-word primer right. on, on global warming and the mechanism behind it, the fundamental science behind it. He also made short explainer videos. Earth transforms sunlight's visible energy into infrared light, and infrared energy leaves Earth slowly because it's absorbed by greenhouse gases. And it continues. You right. can watch like a five-minute right. version of this. You can watch a two-minute, a one-minute version. And w- what did he find? So he found uh, similar results that people become a little uh, climate deniers become a little bit more open-minded by virtue of, of watching these kind of mechanism videos or hearing these short mechanism explanations. Now, the, the um, science communication um, community has been trying for the longest time to get these kind of results, and often it's ineffective. So they do things like appeal to scientific consensus. So if you tell people who don't believe in the climate consensus that there's a scientific consensus and everyone believes it, it doesn't seem to really have the same kind of benefits. But if you explain the mechanism, it opens people up a little bit. Hmm. And this could have all sorts of repercussions for public service announcements, for education, curriculum, things like that. Absolutely. And yet it seems like something like this might break down on an issue like abortion, yeah, which absolutely. is in, in which one's uh, view is not necessarily about pure facts, but about morals, ethics, worldview. Where does this uh, sort of break down uh, on an issue like abortion? Absolutely. Yeah, that's a, that's a great uh, question. So um, we talk about the difference between what we call values-based and consequence-based positions. And so um, when you take a position on an issue, it can be based on a fundamental basic value. That's sort of – the data is irrelevant in that case. I just think it's wrong or I just think it's right. Uh-huh. Um, and then there's more of a consequentialist analysis or consequence-based analysis where you say, if we implement this policy, here's what's going to happen. Um, and you make a, a great observation that if your position really is values based, your sense of under, your understanding of it, your true understanding of the repercussions doesn't really matter. And there are certain issues where that might be the case, where we have a divide where it's just a fundamental disagreement about values. And uh, I think that if you're on one side, it's you have to allow that the other side can have different values than you. Now, what I, why I think that. Our research is relevant is because what happens is often we take issues that can or should be construed consequentially and we construe them in terms of values. In fact, sometimes politicians purposely do this in order to sort of shut down debate. In our research, what we find is that when you think about an issue through the values lens, it seems very black and white. It seems simple. 
and, and it's, even yeah, healthcare could absolutely. be argued through it's that. It's a lens. great example, and I, it, it, it most issues actually you can look at them in this way, um, and and so what we find is that when you do take on that values lens. Um, it seems like um, it's impossible to compromise. And I think the healthcare debate is a great example of this. And yet, um, that lens, the values lens, can lead to very stirring speeches and sound bites. But I guess what you're saying is you're imploring politicians where they can to maybe step back from that and focus on the the sort of meat or the, the brass tacks of an issue because it might be a place where more consensus could be found. I think um, it would help. So the, the observation you made at the very beginning of the program, that if you talk to, um, you know, 10 people on either side of the partisan divide about healthcare, they all kind of want the same stuff. We do have um, people who are ideological on the edges who really want different stuff. But I'm always shocked when I talk to somebody who has a different political view from me by how reasonable they are and how similar their sort of uh, their desires are in terms of what they want the outcomes to be. But that gets obscured when we talk in terms of our values, because as soon as we talk in terms of our values and we have this sort of overestimation of how well we understand it, there's only two possible explanations for why you think something different. Either you're stupid or you're evil. Mm. And that's kind of where we go to. Um, But the caricature is often untrue in my experience. I like the word you're using, outcomes, that if yeah. you can focus less on on values and, and more on outcomes, what do you want exactly. the country to look like, healthcare to, that, that perhaps there's more room for common ground? How do you think the internet affects our perceptions of our own knowledge? I mean, the ability to Google and immediately get an right. answer, I'm guessing emboldens us even further. Absolutely. So I talked about this this community of knowledge idea where knowledge is really distributed across a community. And that's been true since sort of the dawn of human beings. That's really how we evolved is really to share knowledge in that way. But we're definitely in a new uh, era when um, all the world's knowledge is in my pocket at, you know, at, at the tap of a, of, of, of a finger. So yeah. it's, it's, it's pretty amazing change to, to our knowledge accessibility. And there's actually been some really cool research. Um, two different research groups sort of simultaneously discovered the same phenomenon, which is um, that when you search the Internet, you actually get this inflated sense of knowledge and understanding. It's a similar kind of effect to um, what we talked about before with toilets or with healthcare. So just by virtue of having access to all that information, you kind of feel like you yourself know it all. Um, I've done a little bit of work on this, studying things like um, people's financial decision-making or medical decision-making. So for instance, if you go on and research your symptoms on WebMD, it makes you feel, yeah, it drives doctors nuts, right? Because um, you spend a few minutes on WebMD and all of a a sudden you feel like a genius. Right. Or I think I'm dying of some rare condition. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that can lead to some negative outcomes. I think you're saying that that sense of of being emboldened. But, you know, I, I guess the... The string of what I'm hearing here, Phil, is that uh, you you value knowledge. You value those who know what they don't know. Mm-hmm. And that strikes me as, as you playing a, putting a very high um, uh, value on, I don't know, academics or elites. That's a term that's been used a lot lately. Those who know a lot and probably know what they don't know. Yet I feel like this is a time in which elites are under attack. Science Mm -hmm. is under attack and being questioned. Um, What do you think? 
Well, it's, I don't think it's an elitist position because we all have our own d- domains of expertise. Um, and yes, when we're trying to adjudicate issues, say healthcare, I do think that it's really important to find good sources of expertise who really understand the issues in depth. But one of the major points of our book is that it is, is very non-elitist, right? Like as, as, as human beings, we're just not built to be able to store huge amounts of knowledge and what we're really even, great at. Even Albert Einstein. Even Albert Einstein. You're saying right. he has shortcomings. Absolutely, yeah. Um, so what human beings are really great at is this kind of group behavior, this ability to collaborate and pursue these incredibly complex goals when none of us has anything remotely approaching the knowledge to understand um, how to achieve that that goal. That no one person holds all of the knowledge, no two people do, and frankly, no one party, I guess you could say, does either. Is this, uh, in a way, uh, advocacy for bipartisanship or something like that? So I, I definitely don't want to make the claim that uh, there's, you know, that that no one's right on any issues, that there can be no truth. Um, that's absolutely not the point at all. The point is that as individuals, as people who are non-experts, we should work to check our and verify our understanding about these issues because um, because what. It's okay. To, we have to take positions. We're not saying you shouldn't take positions, but we should be a little bit better calibrated in the strength of those positions. How would you foster that in a community? How could that change how I interact with someone on a daily basis? I think it it involves um, sort of habitually um, practicing more intellectual humility. So instead of uh, our minds uh, tell us, I got it. Very rapidly, very quickly doubt, about complex issues. You should doubt that. When you, you should feel doubt it? that. You should, when you feel it, you should question it. And um, you also need to question your community. Now, you, we, like I said, we all sort of live under this illusion that we've arrived at these positions we have through a serious analysis. But often we are just channeling what our community has to say. And that can get us into trouble. That can make, make us uh, um, too slow to actually check and verify, and and also to assume that the other side is just completely off base. And they might be, but we're not always in position to actually adjudicate that. CU Boulder cognitive scientist Philip Fernback is my guest. His new book is The Knowledge Illusion. And I want to go back to this comparison between the human mind and the computer. So there was actually a study that sought to to look to compare the, the human brain and the computer and found that the, the human brain's pretty puny when it comes to like uh, learning things and retaining things. Um, I know this is a bit out there, but you go into it in the book. Would some sort of artificial intelligence actually be better at governing someday? <laughs> you know, I think about, and, and you write about this as well, yeah. planes that largely fly themselves and that often make better decisions than human pilots might. Because there are so many data points that a computer can take in that perhaps a, a pilot can't. And again, this is not universally true. But I don't know. In, in, the, in the way that we have autopilot, could we have auto government? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we're even close to being there yet. So actually, there's been quite a bit of um, sort of, al- I, would, I, I would say, alarm about uh, sort of uh, runaway artificial intelligence becoming super smart. Um, right. And turning on us. And turning on us, right. Um, uh, I guess something out of... Uh, uh, out of a science fiction movie, um, we we make the argument in the book that that we're not even close to the, to those kind of capabilities. So m- machines, artificial intelligences, are getting amazing at cert- solving certain kinds of problems. 
and the scope of those uh, the the scope of what they can do is 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 advancing very rapidly but the argument we make in the book is that what really makes people special this ability to um to collaborate with others to share knowledge um that is a very special human capability that no machine is even remotely close to. And really to figure out how to get machines to be able to do that. To collaborate. Yeah, it's the same as solving sort of the mysteries of how the mind works. And we are, cognitive science is a very young field. And we are just scratching the surface of understanding those kinds of things. You have told us that knowledge is shared in a community. It's spread out. Uh, and yet, don't we as as human beings tend to lionize individuals? So uh, we often think of, you know, Marie Curie mm-hmm. as the scientist who made a big discovery. We think of, of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, as the civil rights leader. Um, we tend to lionize individuals. And I, I suppose that it means we lack the nuance of how certain historical breakthroughs occurred. Not to right. say that these people weren't pivotal, though. That's right. Um, there are, obviously, those people you mentioned are all amazing, great people. But the reality of history um, and of any endeavor is much more complex. Um, it really requires a community. No individual can do almost anything on their own. And this, um, this, this sort of illusion that we live under, that we ourselves have all this knowledge and that we can figure out everything on our own, it leads to this um, sort of uh, false sense of, of how important individuals are and how much individuals can contribute. And I think it's really a shame because we sort of go through life feeling like we ourselves need to know everything and that we should be experts in every domain and we're embarrassed if we don't know something or can't remember something. And it's just not realistic to see the world that way. All people are imperfect and ignorant. Um, that's just the way it is. Uh, As we wrap up, I'd like to have you read a passage for us from the book, The Knowledge Illusion. Some Eastern philosophies encourage adherents to appreciate their own ignorance, to accept that they know little and to respect what others know. Indeed, some traditions go farther, encouraging, uh, encouraging people to have gratitude for the knowledge of others. We take this as a lesson of cognitive science, too. We can learn and conceive only a finite amount as individuals. To achieve greater things, we need a community. In the most fundamental way, in terms of how we think, we're all in it together. We're all in it together. How, just very briefly, has this changed your view of your own mind? That's a great question. This definitely is the, the research that I've worked on in my career that's had the most personal impact on me. Um, when you do this kind of work, one thing you very quickly realize is how dramatically complex the world is. And how little of that knowledge actually resides in our own individual in heads. And um, it really uh, humbles you. Um, and and it, I think it opens your mind in sort of a liberating way. Um, so that's how, how it sort of changed my perspective. Philip Fernback is a cognitive scientist at CU Boulder and co-author of the new book, The Knowledge Illusion, Why We Never Think Alone. You can read an excerpt at cprnews.org. This is Colorado Matters.
This past Sunday marked a milestone for a big evangelical church in Denver. For more than a year, Denver Community Church was soul-searching about the role gays, lesbians, and transgender folks should play in the congregation. Church leaders read scripture together, prayed together, and they sought help from a trans pastor, Reverend Paula Williams. She was on our show not too long ago when church elders voted unanimously for full inclusion of LGBT people. Well, over the weekend, Reverend Williams gave her first sermon at Denver Community Church. She told the congregation that she'd recently reconnected with her parents. My mother had an agenda. She's 91. She was going to make sure I knew that I had been born her son. She was there, you know. And she was going to make sure that she only called me Paul and that she only referred to me in male pronouns, but I'd been there about a half hour, and she just couldn't keep up with her agenda. (laughs) Dad was in the kitchen, and we were admiring some things I've always admired of her, some cups and saucers, and so she said to my father, she said, well, Dave, she wants to take one of the cups and saucers with her, so I told her to pick out whichever one she wants to pick out, and that she can take it with her now, and it's like, oh, that's so sweet, she's correctly gendering me. She had this agenda, but she just couldn't stick with it because she was enjoying this woman who'd come to visit with her. I spent a delightful day with them. I took pictures. Pictures of me with my father. Pictures of me with my mother. It was a day I will treasure forever. Dad's 93, Mom's 91. When it was time to go, Dad came over and very seriously hugged me. And he said, you know, I can't call you my daughter. And I said, well, Dad, of course you can't. You raised a son. It's okay. He said, I can call you Paula, though. Because I don't have to understand this. I just have to choose to love you. We are a fragmented nation, polarized to extremes. We can't escape it in the news. Everywhere we turn, people are at one extreme or the other. How do we unite? There's only one way. If we will find the courage to say the same thing my father said. If we find the courage to say, you know, I don't have to understand this. I just have to choose to love you. And if we can say that, we can heal this nation. We can bring unity. There is more of Reverend William's sermon to Denver Community Church at CPRnews.org. There you can also hear our previous conversation with her. Now, some of your feedback in loud and clear. I spoke last week with a couple that survived the Aurora theater shooting five years ago. Katie Medley and her unborn child escaped uninjured, but her husband Caleb was shot in the face, partially paralyzing him. It also impaired Caleb's speech. So during the conversation, Katie helped clarify his responses. Stephen Bruns of Longmont heard the interview. He emailed, It's inspiring to realize that we are surrounded by people like the Medleys. What great courage and grace they show in the wake of a life-altering tragedy. 
Claudia Weber-Wagner of Lakewood commented at CPRnews.org about, quote, Caleb's unselfconscious and quick-witted humor and Katie's seamless translations and her obvious appreciation for her husband. Keep in touch with Colorado Matters. You'll find all the ways at cprnews.org slash connect. The Denver Broncos open training camp Thursday with no clarity yet on who will be the starting quarterback. But Sports Illustrated got a lot of insights into the Broncos when it surveyed the 2016 team on issues like concussions, politics, and family upbringing even. The story written by Robert Klemko appeared last month in the magazine, and uh, Klemko joins me to discuss this project. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So you surveyed 51 Broncos players mm-hmm. When you started, one of them asked what you were trying to prove by digging into these areas, because they're not all directly related to sports by any means. What's the answer to that question? What are you trying to prove here? Yeah. And that player was Russell Okung, and he's been in the league about eight years and one of the smarter guys you'll ever meet in an NFL locker room. And I think whereas a lot of guys just kind of blindly answered the questions once I said they were approved by the Broncos, uh, Russell wanted to know what the final product was going to be. What was the point? And for me, it was um, to kind of illuminate this discussion that we always have whenever there's a controversy in a football locker room, um, specifically when when Michael Sam was coming into the NFL and uh, people were asking NFL players, you know, um, what's it going to be like having a, a gay guy in the locker room? And players would say, well, a locker room is the most diverse place in the NFL. And that's a go-to whenever there's a controversy because they, they want it to feel like and they want to make it seem like they have more diversity than any other place in sports. So they're used to these sorts of things that are outliers. So I wanted to actually test that and understand in which ways a locker room is diverse and in which ways it's really not. And not just racially diverse, but diverse in terms of life experience, in terms of upbringing. And so we'll we'll dig into these finer points. But was the team generally Leary, do you think? It sounds like you had to pre-clear the questions through the front office. Yeah, so I I ended up working with uh, Patrick Smythe, who's uh, media relations for the Broncos, consistently viewed across the league as one of the best in the NFL. And I really found out why during this process, because, I mean, he was very open to anything that I wanted to ask. He just wanted to understand, like Russell did, why I was asking Mm -hmm. him. And there wasn't one thing that he turned down here. Um, but no, Nothing was off limits? Nothing was off limits. I, I, I think that there were things that I omitted because I knew I wasn't going to get a straight answer. And I knew it was going to be a roadblock in every interview. Like what? For instance, asking who they voted for in November. I knew that probably five or six guys would tell me, but that really wouldn't be actionable data that would be fascinating to somebody. You did, though, I think, uh, manage to probe about whether they voted at all. So not for whom they voted. Right. And when you ask Broncos players, whether they participate that way in the democracy, what do they tell you? Well, 66.7% of the roster didn't vote, which was a pretty tremendous disappointment to me just, you know, as a fan of the NFL. Two-thirds of those you surveyed did not even vote in the November election? Right. And and these are guys who often have lived in different cities, have come from, in many cases, the poorest level of upbringing to now having wealth, having generational wealth that's going to affect generations of their family and, and their kids' kids. And they still 
a lot of them did not feel like uh, having a stake in our democracy was very important. Did you find that voter participation among the Broncos depended or was related to other factors, uh, race, income, something like the education? All of it. All of it. I mean, we found that non-white voters um, voted at a significantly um, lower rate. We found that uh, voters without a uh, uh, players without a college degree um, were much less inclined to vote than players with a degree. I believe forty one percent who had a degree voted, and thirteen percent who didn't have a degree voted. Mm. Players who identified as having come from a lower class background as children were less likely to vote than those who came from a middle class background. There wasn't one thing that was a perfect um, predictor, but all of them contributed. And we should say that African-Americans uh, are in the majority uh, in, in this particular locker room. And I think that's true across the NFL. Yeah, there's actually fewer African-Americans in this locker room than is standard across the NFL. It's, huh. It was about 55 percent, I think, in this locker room, whereas in the NFL, that number is more like 70 percent. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are delving into who the Broncos are in greater depth than just their sports lives with Robert Klemko, who did a survey of the team in 2016 and asked all sorts of questions related to politics, family upbringing and concussions. I really do want to talk about head injuries in football, especially in light of this morning's report. This is in the Journal of the American Medical Association. And it found that all but one of 111 former NFL players whose brains had been studied posthumously had had a traumatic brain injury. And you asked these Broncos how many of them had suffered a concussion. 66% said they had. Uh, Was this a source of concern for them when you asked that question? I think... What I found just in covering the NFL, and and when I asked this question, I expected to to get a response like this, is that players often don't think about concussions because they feel like if they think about injuries in any way, it will hamper how aggressive they can be and how much they can live in the moment when they're on the field. If you have a middle linebacker who's going to hit somebody on nearly every play that he's on the field, and he's thinking about possibly injuring his brain, then that's, that's brain power that he's using instead of trying to predict what's going to happen on the field and get in positions where he can hit somebody effectively with his shoulder. So if football is a mind game, you can't spend too much time thinking about the mind itself, I think <laughs> exactly. is what you're saying. Yeah, and, it, and, it's, and it's kind of counterintuitive, right? But I think these guys think about it uh, later in their career, and they're able to acknowledge that they did have concussions in their career, whereas 17 guys on this roster said they hadn't. And there was a linebacker on the team uh, specifically that I talked to about it. Is it, this is Todd Davis? Yeah, Todd Davis. He, he played football at Sacramento State University. You go back into his statistics from high school to the end of college, and he had 500 tackles between 11th grade and the end of college. So he hit somebody with his shoulders and possibly his head 500 times, and he says he's never had a concussion. And I, I think for Todd and for a lot of these guys that play these high-intensity positions and say they don't have concussions, it's because they don't really understand what a concussion is. Because anytime you go woozy, anytime you see stars, that's considered a symptom of a traumatic brain injury. But a lot of guys in the NFL don't consider it a concussion unless you are out, unless you go to sleep. Mm. Yeah, because 66% seemed low to me. Yeah. And so it, yeah. I think in this regard, it's not that you believe they're answering untruthfully. 
it's their view of what a concussion is. I guess. Yeah, I don't think any of these guys are lying. Um, I did know I did notice that there was one player who had a documented concussion history who said he'd never had one. So that player was lying. Okay. Uh, but but I think for the most part, these guys just have a different definition of concussion than what doctors do. So is that uh, a lesson for the NFL about how the league is talking to the players? About what a head injury is? I think that the NFL over the past several years has come to understand that players don't really understand what concussions are and they're not going to pull each other off the field and they're not going to voluntarily come off the field and say that they've had a concussion because they know that they're going to be out of that game indefinitely. Mm -hmm. They might not even play the next week and there's a lot of money on the line here. So what they've done uh, uh, three years ago was add spotters up in the press box independent medical spotters, you know, they say they're independent, right? And they're supposed to radio down to the training staff if you believe that you have you've seen a player exhibiting concussion symptoms or you believe that a player needs to be checked out. Now, we've seen... Be- because in the way that these guys might be unreliable sources, they would also be on the field. Exactly. And, and now we've seen cases where quarterbacks very visibly through instant replay have slammed their heads on the ground and the independent concussion spotter up in the booth was either ignored or didn't make the call. So we know that it's an imperfect system often at the, at the worst moments for the NFL in playoff games at the end of the game with a game on the line, we know that ultimately the best players on the field are just going to refuse to come off. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and Robert Klemko is with us. He is a staff writer at Sports Illustrated covering the National Football League. And we're talking about his uh, survey of Broncos players, about their lives and careers. And I want to move on to uh, a question you might not think to ask if you had audience with a a member of the Broncos, and that has to do with firearms. You thought about, about broaching them, broaching this with them, I think. Um, and I think of the corner, cornerback, Akib Talib, who was involved in an incident in which he accidentally shot himself. Right. Right. So what, what about guns? So I didn't end up asking these guys about guns. Um, and really the only reason was that I knew that each of these surveys needed to have a cutoff if I was going to be able to accomplish it in seven or eight visits to the locker room. Um, and that question didn't make it. But it is a fascinating question. I did a story when I was working at USA Today uh, four years ago where I talked about the legacy of Sean Taylor. And Sean Taylor, you'll remember, uh, I believe it was 2004, um, there was a break-in in his home and the attackers had uh, were armed and he was defending uh, his girlfriend with a machete. And Sean was shot to death, shot in the leg. And uh, bled out and died. And he was one of the most talented young defensive players in the NFL at that time. So what I found in doing that article was that immediately after that incident, almost the entire Redskins roster, if they weren't already armed at home with a gun at the ready, they had one. And I think that 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 sentiment and that trend um, spread across the entire NFL Mm. um, because guys understand that when they go home, there's a period of about three months when they're sitting uh, on some enormous wealth and they're in neighborhoods or near neighborhoods where they grew up and people know where they live and they understand that they've become a target. Hmm. Let's talk about um, class, their own perceptions of class 
And whether uh, Broncos players thought they were middle class, upper middle class, what was their perception of their own background, their own wealth? Sure. Well, I asked the players to self-identify, which has flaws in itself, because I can't go and do research on what everybody's household income was when they were five years old. It's it's almost impossible. Uh, it was it'd be a survey that would take five years. Um, so I asked these guys on a scale of one to five, how would you rate your childhood household income? One being lower class, um, two lower middle, three middle, four upper middle, and five upper. Not one player identified himself as upper. 15 players identified themselves as being part of the lower class. That's 15 out of 51. 19 identified as being part of that number three group, the middle class. Six identified as upper middle. So what I found was that players mostly um, identified a class lower than they probably actually were. Mm. Well, there's uh, a natural humility, I think, that all of us have. Right? Yeah, and, mm. I, and I think that when you're an NFL player, especially, and you're in an, a locker room with guys from Apalaka, Florida, and, and all of these towns in the South that have produced great NFL talent where there's extreme, extreme poverty, mm. um, uh, that forces a little bit of humility and maybe uh, some lies ab- about what you know about your own background. So you set out to find out if locker rooms were as diverse as the league would have you believe, Mm -hmm. because you you heard that over and over again. The locker room is one of the most diverse places. Uh, After this survey, which delved into all of these different areas of of these players' lives, what conclusion do you come to? Well, I think that they're diverse in a lot of ways and also pretty myopic in some ways. I mean, you look at the um, religious breakdown a vast, vast majority of Christians, more more than is represented in, in the population. Not a religiously diverse place, the Exa- Exactly. Um, you look at uh, their college degrees. They have college degrees at a higher rate than the public. Huh. Generations of their families, especially for non-white players, have college degrees at a higher rate than the general public. So there are different advantages and different things that make them, as a population, different than the the general public. But I think that what it's most diverse in is income. Um, there are guys that do come from the very top of the spectrum, and there are guys that come from the very, very bottom. Okay, we have less than a minute. I have to ask you, while you're here, who you think will be the st- starting quarterback? <laughs> you know, I, it's so hard to choose because it is a new coaching staff. Uh-huh. The offensive coordinator is a former head coach and Mike McCoy. And uh, I think the decision will ultimately come down to who he believes has the best chance to win games this year for this football team. Okay, that's a non-answer. I'm going to say, <laughs> all right, I'm going to give you Trevor Simeon. Yeah, versus the, Paxton Lynch. Yeah, Trevor Simeon versus Paxton Lynch. I'm going to go with the guy that's a little bit more experienced that the last coaching staff that was here absolutely fell in love with. All right. Thank you for sharing the results of this survey with us, getting to know the Broncos better. Thank you for having me. Robert Klemko of Denver is a staff writer for Sports Illustrated covering the National Football League. He surveyed Broncos players about their lives and careers, and we've linked to his story at cprnews.org. I'm Ryan Warner. That's Colorado Matters. So glad you could spend time with us on Colorado Public Radio.